study? Well, we um, study the Bible every week. We believe the Bible is God's Word. <laughs> it's, you know, it contains all that we need for life and godliness. It's our authority. Uh, and so let's turn and read from Ephesians. Uh, we've been starting this series as a church plant because it basically teaches us what God's plan is in eternity and how He wants it displayed in our community. Chapters 1 through 3 have really looked at God's eternal plan for salvation, to liberate us from darkness into light, to bring Jew and Gentile together into one new body. And then chapters 4 through 6 really look at what it looks like to be that new community, that new humanity. Chapter 4 verse 1 implored us to live a life in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And then we've seen unity in community, our diversity in ministry, and then how do we actually live out a new life by putting off the old self, renewing our mind and putting on the new self. That's how we change. And now we get into this passage where Paul kind of makes it really practical and there's lots of like, thou shalt not and thou shalt. Um, but they're not designed here to be, you know, Paul is just a maniacal, moralistic, self-righteous man that wants everyone to change. These commands in this section we're going to see are for our good. They're for our benefit. Imagine if we all lived like this all the time. Um, and it's to coincide with who we are as new creatures in Christ. And so with all that in mind, let's read from Ephesians chapter 4, um, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed, um, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Would you pray? Lord God, we pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was studying this passage this week, I came across a sermon by Tim Mackey, uh, the, you know, the Bible Project, if you've ever seen those videos. Um, and he was explaining this passage, and he, he came up with this really good um, story from a teacher in America about the dynamic of how this passage works. You see, in Ephesians, Paul has this lofty view of what's going on, that we're almost in heaven, is the way Paul kind of talks to the Ephesian Christians. Like, you've already been saved, you're already seated with Christ, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, you're a new creature in Christ, put off the old, renew your mind, put on the new, live like a new person. And he, in this kind of way that Paul's speaking, he's trying to help us see that the old is gone, the new has come, so therefore live in the new. But one of our problems is that we often have this wrong identity about who we are and this wrong way of thinking. 
Um, and so he tells this story of a, a year one teacher or a first grade teacher in the US, um, and her name was Crystal Jones. She turned up to this elementary school in a disadvantaged community and looked at her class of 20 or so students from various backgrounds. And in her classroom, there were kids that had never been able to read. They'd gone through kindergarten, still couldn't read. When they picked up a book, they had it upside down. They didn't know what was um, up or down, left or right, anything. And there were kids that were disobedient, kids from you know, low socioeconomic backgrounds. She's thinking, what am I going to do to train these guys in how they're meant to live? You know, what, what hope have I got? How are they going to meet the outcomes that they need to meet? And so she was faced with a choice, you know, what's the best way to teach these students? And they weren't the natural learners, they weren't particularly keen themselves. And so as she was trying to figure this out and was teaching them, she observed them in the playground while she was on duty. And she noticed that when all the kids were playing, they were happy playing with each other. But when an older kid came along, a third grader came along, the kids suddenly were like, whatever they had to say, they were following. Whatever the third grader did, they became like the third grader. They walked, they talked, they, you know, they had the ideas and the, what was cool to the third grader was cool like them. And she noticed that the kids really wanted to grow up. They wanted to be like third graders. So she changed her whole teaching tack from being maybe, I don't know if she was going to be authoritarian, but she chose not to do that. And instead, in the classroom, she made a new goal for the students. And she said to them, okay, everyone, in our class, what we're going to do this year, this is what is going to happen. By the end of the year, you're all going to be third graders. And the kids were like, what? No way. We get to be third graders? And he's like, yeah, that's what's going to happen. You're going to be third graders. You're going to read like a third grader. You're going to do maths like a third grader. And by the end of the year, you're going to be so smart and cool that everyone will think you're a third grader. And the kids are like, oh, this is amazing. This is incredible. And so then what she did, not only did she give them this great goal, so she didn't say, by the end of the year, you'll be able to comprehend full sentences and relay back to the class. She didn't do that. She gave them this tangible vision of who they could be third graders, and then she gave them this new identity. Instead of being, you know, say, 1J, Crystal Jones, Mrs. Jones's class, she referred to them as scholars. And so each kid had to refer to each kid in the classroom as scholar. So scholar Maddie and scholar Carice and scholar Lawrence. And and she gave them this tagline that they all had to say every time. They had to say, um, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and who is good at it. So whenever someone visited the classroom, they would, you know, the teacher would say, who are we? And they'd say, we're scholars. We live to learn and we're good at it every time. And so over the year, what was drilled into them was, you can change. You will become different. In fact, you're going to become a third grader. And who are you? You're a scholar. You're not some kid from this background or whatever who can't read. You can. You love learning. You love reading. After six months in the spring, you know, for Americans start in um, fall for their school year. By the spring, they were already reading at second grade levels, and they were in year one. By the end of the year, 90% of the students could read at a third grade level and do maths at a third grade level. Anytime a kid missed a class, they were super bummed. Like, no, I'm not going to be in class. And the kids would catch them up, and this is what you missed out on. And she'd created this incredible atmosphere and environment. That dynamic is really what Paul is getting at in these put-off, put-on kind of scenarios in Ephesians. You see, Paul is looking at these Christians and saying, you're not first graders. You are saints. You have been redeemed. You have a new identity. You're not Gentiles anymore. You are new creatures in Christ. 
And he gives them a goal, not just to, you know, um, be slightly better or figure out how to live, but their new goal is to live like Christ himself, to walk in the way that God walked, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And so Paul is giving them a whole new goal to live like Christ and a whole new identity. You're a new creature. And he wants that identity to pervade the atmosphere of their mind and the community of their church so that they view each other differently rather than think, oh, there's that weak person, there's that, oh, that guy, he used to be a pagan worshiper, you know, he used to be in a cult, he used to be a witch, you know, well, she used to be a witch and he used to be a wizard. You know, they used to be in all, rather than that, they're now seeing each other with a new identity. Saint, look around the room. Each person here who follows Christ is a holy one in Christ. They are a new creature. The old has gone, the new has come. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let's, let's be third graders. <laughs> let's not live as first graders in the faith. Let's live up to what we've been called to live to. And so Paul says to them, you have put off the old self. Be renewed in your mind. Put on the new self. And this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be a third grader. And then he goes on and gives this huge list of 13 imperatives of things that we need to change in. But don't feel daunted by the list of all the things we've got to change. Think, this is who I could be because I have the power of Christ in me. The resurrected Jesus lives in me. I can change. And as a community, this is not just an individual project like self-help. Oh, I want to be a better person. This whole passage is directed to the church. That as a community, we're meant to change to become like this and not like the old way. So as we kind of speedboat through all these commands and and imperatives and ideas and thou shalt nots and thou shalts, have that in mind. We have a new goal to live in a manner worthy of our calling and we have a new identity. We are actually spiritually new creatures in Christ. We are not dominated by the old ways anymore. And so, to kind of summarize the message in one line, I think this is what Paul is getting at. Becoming a new creature in Christ means living a new life in community. Okay? Becoming a new creature in Christ, that's sort of verses 17 through 24, means living a new life in community. And I wanted to add that in there because it's so quick for us to take all these verses and think about just me and my personal life, which it it obviously has to be that. But Paul's talking to the whole church. It's one another. And so today's a five-point sermon because there's really five broad commands in here. I'm not going to say them all now, but just get ready. There's five points, so we'll see how we go. I'll try and keep it somewhat contained and brief. Um, We're going to really kind of jet ski over a lot of it. Um, We can't go into too much detail. But here's what I trust. The Spirit of God may radically affect you through His Word being read and preached. That you maybe can't focus on all 13 commands that happen here. Maybe think about one. Maybe think one that you need to work on or think about or pray into. Perhaps the Lord will convict you of a sin that you didn't even know was a sin through it. So don't feel overwhelmed. Just be thinking, this is who I want to be. This is how I want our church to be in the future. And how can I get there bit by bit by bit in the process? And if you're not yet a believer, again, I want to remind you, this is not how you become a Christian, is by changing your life. No, you become a Christian. Being a Christian is following Jesus. And then he changes your life after that. That's what it means. So 
Here we go. Five points. Point number one, put off lying and put on truth. Put off lying and put on truth. So we're using this language of put off, renew, put on. Read verse 25 with me again. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The first issue that Paul wants to address in the Ephesian community is that of truth and falsehood. That in their community, he wants them to be a unified body, to see themselves truly as members one of another, and therefore to live in a way that is in te- has integrity, no lying, no deceiving, no trickery, but only truth. You see, you know, it's all, it seems obvious, well, we shouldn't lie because it's bad. But even deeper than that, John 8, 44, Jesus says this about Satan. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, lying can become just a little part of our life, a little bending of the truth to get away with something that we wouldn't get away with, to get something that we wouldn't get, to, you know, save face when we want to save face. But when we engage in lying, we're actually engaging in satanic behavior. Satan loves lies because God is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so one way that Satan will destroy our little church community is through falsehood, lies, and deception. And so instead of falsehood being dominating our characteristic, we're meant to put on speaking the truth to one another. Now that line there is actually quoted directly from the prophet Zechariah when he's looking at this new Jerusalem coming forward. And in Zechariah it says the same thing. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. It's a direct quote. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. And earlier in that chapter, Zechariah was setting the vision of what Israel would be like. And it says this in the KJV. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. See, Paul's looking at the Ephesians, and whatever their past was isn't meant to define their future. And for us, we are to be a church of truth. When people come here, they should experience truth, unvarnished, (laughs) ugly, and raw at times. Um, John McKay says this, a lie is a stab into the very vital of the body of Christ. You see, when we don't have truth as a foundation in our relationships, we actually destroy our whole community. So quickly, our church, our little church plant would be destroyed if we were lying to one another. Could you imagine if you're in group life and everyone's like, and how are you going? Oh, I'm doing fine, I'm doing fine, doing fine. Then you find out next week they've actually filed for divorce and their whole marriage is destroyed. Whoa. Deception and lies. It can happen in the subtlest ways or the most extreme of ways. But instead, we're to speak truth to one another. So what does this look like in practice? Well, I think the easiest way to apply this is to, as best we can, in humility, to be completely real with each other. I see this image of just taking off a false identity and being who you really are, (laughs) for better or for worse. When people ask you, how are you? You know, in safe context with people you trust, being real and honest and vulnerable, not just saying, yeah, I'm fine, if things are going really badly. 
when you can't make things and you can't fulfill a commitment. Not making up some white lie to cover over the fact that you just didn't plan it or didn't do it. Just tell the truth. And then when someone asks you a question like, hey, do you, do you notice anything in my life where I need to grow? And if you actually have something where you think, actually, this would bless them, to tell the truth to them rather than trying to save face and be like, oh, no, no, you're fine. Everything's good. Your parenting's great. And then secretly in your heart, you're like, oh, it's actually not. Now, obviously, all this truth speaking requires grace, and we'll get to that later on. But being real with each other in our community will build our community. In verse 15, Paul says, um, let me go back to it. I've got it here somewhere. Yeah, I've got it here. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. One of the foundational ways we'll grow as a church is by speaking truth to one another in love. So is there anything in your, happening in your life right now which you're hiding? Is there any deception or falsehood or about who you are or what you do? Is there any part of you which you're holding back from our church and you're, you're pretending or lying? May you put off falsehood and speak the truth in love. Because you are not a liar anymore in Christ. You love truth. So live in the truth. Becoming a new creature in Christ means living a new life in community. One of those ways is putting off lying, putting on truth. Point number two, and Paul's next command, put off unrighteousness. Oh, sorry, put off unrighteous anger and put on righteous anger. It's an interesting one. Verse 26 and 7. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In this one, Paul starts with the positive command first. Be angry and do not sin. And the way he structures it is that he gives this positive imperative. We ought to be angry, but then he gives it kind of a boundary and a protection by giving three negatives. So there is a right place for anger, but you have to be very careful with it. You see, Paul is actually commanding the Ephesians as a church community to be righteously angry. As Christians, there are things that we ought to be angry about. Our God at times is an angry God. He hates sin. He hates injustice. He hates lies and deception. He hates the evil one. And so we too are to hate what God hates. Now it's dangerous and hard and we, we are prone to being self-righteous and judgmental and, and there's a lot of caveats that need to be made. But Paul here is commanding us, be angry about the right things. You see, Jesus himself got righteously angry in Mark chapter 3, um, verse 5, when the, the Pharisees brought to him a, a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath in the, in the temple, and they were like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to heal him or not? And Jesus, it says that Jesus got angry with them and was grieved in his heart because of their hypocrisy and because of their deception and lies. In John chapter 2, we see Jesus in the temple clearing out the money changes and the, the kind of idolatry and all the commercial practice that was going on because the zeal of the Lord of the host consumed him. He loved the temple, and it was meant to be a house of prayer. And so when he saw God's temple being desecrated, he was angry. 
John Stott says it like this. It's a, I think this is a helpful quote. There's a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. <laughs> in the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours too. But our anger needs boundaries. Anger is a necessary and appropriate emotion at times, but it's volatile and dangerous. And so it's best to deal with your anger quickly and swiftly and righteously rather than to let it stew, which is why Paul says, be angry and do not sin. So it's okay to hold on to anger, but you have to do it in such a way that you do it without sinning. James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So it's very difficult to kind of hold on to anger in a righteous way, but we can do it because of the Spirit of God that is in us. Then Paul says, but do not let the sun go down on your anger. So he's warning now, okay, it's good to be angry. Don't sin in it. Okay, you're holding on to anger, but don't stew on it forever. He's not saying literally until the sun goes down. It's sort of a metaphorical principle of don't hold on to it indefinitely. Because if you lived in Greenland, you know, you get, you get three months of anger then. Because <laughs> the sun doesn't set for three months. So if you are a really angry person, maybe move to Greenland. Other than that, I think what Paul's saying here is that don't hold on to your anger in such a way that it's unresolved. It's like when you go camping and at night, you've got a fire going. There's always that part of me which wants to pour water on it and put the embers out because I'm just afraid of just embers sitting there. Something could happen. That's how we should feel about our anger. It's not wrong to have it. It can be good, but we shouldn't let the sun go down on it. We should be quick to resolve a problem with a brother or sister in our community. If someone's done something to hurt you or offend you and they've sinned and you're righteously angry, if you can't move on from it by forgiving and moving on, then you need to deal with it and bring, a sin, um, bring you know, the observation to them like Matthew 18 says. Why? Well, what's, what's the consequence? Well, verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul says that there's this link between our anger and creating a space for Satan to have rule and dominion and influence in our life. He's already told us that before we were in Christ, we were ruled by Satan. And now, if we allow anger to sit and stew in us, we're giving an open door for Satan to work in our lives, to destroy our community and our fellowship in Christ. So are there any sins in our world or in our church which you're apathetic about, that you need to be angry about? Injustices, slavery, you know, all manner of sin that you should actually be angry about and praying to the Lord about in a righteous way? Or, conversely, are you sinning in your anger? Are you an unrighteous anger person where you are actually stewing on anger and fuming and seething? And, you know, for me, this is a particular temptation. I think, you know, my, my brothers and my dad and myself, my uncles, there's just a bit of a seething kind of anger. And you can almost feel like it's right, you know, I'm right. But it can take over. And slowly, bit by bit, destroy and rude things and, and sinful things happen. Brothers and sisters, you are like God through Christ. 
So be angry like him. Hate sin and love righteousness. But do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity through it. Put off unrighteous anger and put on righteous anger. Becoming a new creature in Christ means living, in a, means living a new life in our community. That was point two. Here we go. There's lots of boom, boom, boom. Point number three, put off stealing and put on working and giving. Read verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Obviously, there, there must have been some case or a known case in the Ephesian church where people weren't working hard and they were just like, look, I don't have enough money to get by, I'm going to steal. You know, it's, it's Aladdin, so to speak, in you know, the Disney movie. And you, it seems fine because I'm providing for my family and you know, I, I need it or I wouldn't be able to get this if I didn't cheat on my tax return so we can go on holidays as a family. So it's, it's fine, it's fine. But Paul's saying, let the thief no longer steal in whatever element or reality of our life that looks like. For each one of us, it might not be that we're actually stealing things at the shops. Um, you know, I hope that's the case. But, though it may be, you know, I, I, I stole a big baby pop once when I was about 10 years old. It was a pretty terrible act of stealing. I was there in the shop and my friends were stealing things. And then I'm like, the, I, I can't. I just grabbed it and ran, and the lady ran after me, oh, hey, come back here, and then I came back crying, and then I, like, worked for them to pay it back, and I felt terrible, and anyway, I don't know why I told you that, but don't do that, <laughs> don't do that, instead, the point is not so much don't steal, but obviously do not steal, the Lord hates stealing, instead, labor hard with your own hands, if you don't have enough money, work hard, do a good, honest job, Why? Not so that you can just provide for yourself, but so that you can provide for the community. You see, Paul here is commending the value of work in and of itself. We were created to work. You don't have to be working in church or Christian ministry if you have work to be valuable. All good, honest work is valuable. It can be used to support yourself, make good happen in the world, and it can be used to share with others who are in need, as we did this morning with the Go Forward Fund. Okay, that's probably all we need there. So, question, are you stealing anything? If you are, let the thief no longer steal. Whether it be tax income, streaming, movies online, uh, whatever it is that you're tempted to pinch that's not yours by right, no longer steal. Work hard with your hands honestly so that you can give joyfully and generously. Because let me guess this, if you are tempted in stealing and there's things that you're taking that aren't yours, I bet you most of the time you don't use that stolen money to bless others. You're probably not stealing in your tax return and then giving it freely and joyfully. You might be, but most likely you're probably using it on yourself. Whereas honest work produces generous outcome. So brothers and sisters, you're no longer thieves. You're workers for Christ. So share generously and work hard for his glory. Point number four, put off corrupt speech and put on encouraging speech. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, 
but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, the good that we do with our hands is to be matched by the good we do with our mouths. Our God is a speaking God. God has chosen to reveal himself specifically and redemptively through spoken word. He spoke and the world came into existence. Jesus is the word of God incarnate, living in flesh. Our words are vital and matter deeply. Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose words are like, whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We speak a lot every day, when we're happy, when we're sad, when we're full of energy, when we're not full of energy, when we're under pressure, when we're not under pressure. And every time we speak, we have an opportunity as a Christian witness and as a brother and sister in Christ. So firstly, he says, put off corrupting talk. Uh, that, that word there is the word that's used for like rotten fish, decayed intestines. It's a disgusting word. And his idea is like, don't speak words that destroy. Words that are, are filthy and wrong for anyone who names Christ to speak. Whether it be sexual joking or coarse, crass, bitter humor, or words that are just plain downright rude destroying other people, pulling them down, focusing on their negatives and never, never on their strengths. Let no corrupting talk, talk that would lead others astray, talk that would lead them to um, think about other people wrongly or see the world not as God sees it. Let no corrupting, rotting fruit come out of your mouth. You know, like I talked about the other week about the, the, the banana, which you pick it up and then you realize it's all mushy and gross and you're like, oh, I don't want that. That's what he's saying. Don't let that type of words come out. But instead, put on, put on words only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. He's saying here, brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity to speak life into each other as a church. The church will be built as we are new creatures in Christ if we build one another up. So when we arrive at church on a Sunday or life group during the week, we have an opportunity to talk about anything but also to take the chance to build someone up, to look for those who are weak, discouraged, and go, what's a verse I could share? How could I come around them? How can I communicate God's grace and love to them? But he bounds it with, as fits the occasion. So there's to be a wisdom in our speech. We're not just to lay truth bombs on people and be the prophet heralding the truth. Sometimes a quiet, soft-spoken word, sometimes just a gesture of sympathy and love can speak a thousand words. So we need wisdom. Our goal is to build one another up. Our practice is to do it wisely as fits the occasion. So we have to be attentive. We have to be present. That's why you can't do this verse if you don't come to church or group. You're, just, you're not there. You don't know how people are going. So you don't know what to say. Then you don't have the opportunity. And your ultimate goal is that it may give grace to those who hear. As a recipient of grace, as a new creature in Christ, as a third grader, you know, speak grace to one another. And this is something we do so well as a church, and I love it. I love this aspect of our church, and may I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to keep it going. 
So what would this look like in your life? Are there any particular relationships where you feel like, ah, I'm not really building them up. I'm just talking. In, in fact, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm actually doing corrupting talk, gossip and slander perhaps, negative, cynical talk. At home, fathers with your, your children and husbands with your wives, are you seeking to build them up, to give grace to them? Or are you the lawmaker and judge coming home? This is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. You haven't done this. We have a beautiful opportunity as new creatures in Christ to transmit the grace we've been given to other people through words. For life and death is in the power of the tongue. Brothers and sisters, we're no longer corruptors. We give grace to those who hear. That was point number four. Becoming a new creature in Christ means living a new life in community, putting off corrupting talk, putting on graceful words. And finally, point number five. This is kind of Paul's summarizing point, though we're going to look at the sermon next week. Chapter five, verse one to two is really the end of this section, but I thought I'd save it next week for the baby dedications. But this is kind of a summarizing looking at our heart. Point number five. Put off a bitter heart and put on a tender heart. This is really a culminating kind of idea that as we read these verses, you'll see that this encapsulates just so many elements of what it means to be a new creature, to be a third grader, to be a scholar in Christ, is to, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, be kind to one another. I love that. I love that's in the Bible. Be kind. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You can imagine a community fighting and arguing as, the, as it grows, factions grow, politics grow, division grows, people support one leader over another, people support one idea over another, and you can be like, well, that's, you know, that light group, they're annoying, their lunch was terrible, and, you know, that, and, and the fighting begins, and it, but it all starts with a bitter heart, but this bitter heart that's unresolved in anger spews out into wrath and anger, and then clamor, that word means literally shouting, so I don't know what was going on in the Ephesian church, I haven't seen that happen at church yet, hoping it won't, but if you start shouting, don't do it, and finally it ends up in that slander where you're just talking bad about people behind their back. Be, let them all be put away with, from you, along with all malice, which is literally just like only having evil intent for people, um, which is a horrible way to live, but instead we're to put on kindness to one another. That same word is used in um, Henry's exhortation, Psalm 34. Um, Taste and see that the Lord is good. The same word can be translated kind. So Paul is saying, be like God. Be kind like God is. In the kindness that you've received, may your your whole posture of life be kindness. When people meet you, they think, what a kind person. Tender-hearted. Rather than callous and cynical and bitter and angry at the world and other people, tender, loving, gentle, like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who didn't want to put out the smoldering wick. He had compassion at all times. And when sinned against, what do we do? We forgive one another as God in Christ forgave 
us. You see, we're to put off this, you know, and put to death this heart, which so is so natural, just to get angry, frustrated, build up with pent-up rage, think you're better than everyone, anger, malice. It happens so easily if you don't put it to death. And we're to put on kindness, tenderheartedness, when sinned against, quick to forgive. And the reason Paul gives here is, as God in Christ forgave you. And with all these virtues and all these vices, if we have this in mind, it all becomes a lot clearer. If you remember daily that I have been forgiven as a sinner of all my sins, past, present, future, all my you know, lying words, all my unrighteous anger, all my thieving and stealing, all my corrupting talk, and all my bitterness and all my rage has been paid for. It's been forgiven. I'm a forgiven one. And you remember that I'm actually now through the Spirit, I'm a saint. I'm a holy one. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm a third grader. I'm a scholar. I actually have the power now to forgive and love and speak the truth and work hard and be angry and not sin and talk words that build up and encourage and have a kind and tender heart. See, keeping the cross in focus enables us to walk the line because it gives us our identity and our goal. Becoming a new creature in Christ means living a new life in our community. It's got to look like something. People should be able to walk in and see, and if you're not a believer here today, you should be able to see in our lives that we're new, we're different, and we're changed. And it's not because we're epic and we're just particularly you know, hardworking and diligent, upright, moral creatures. It's because our God is awesome. And he has done an amazing work and he's made us new in Christ. So brothers and sisters, you are new creatures. You're third graders. <laughs> You're scholars. Let's live in the goodness of this as a community. And let's do it all for his glory and all to spread his name in our city. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you that we can change. We can actually change. We're not dominated by sin. The power of sin has been broken. We thank you that the penalty of sin has been paid. And Lord, although we are aware that the presence of sin remains and entices us, we can walk in newness of life. We can walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. So we call upon you as a, as a believing community. Would you help us? Would you help us to put off lying and put on truth? To put off unrighteous anger and put on righteous anger? To put off stealing and to put on honest work? To put off corrupting speech and to put on words of kindness and grace? And to put off a bitter and evil heart? And to put on a kind and tender heart? Whether we're here at church, in our life groups, or at home, may people be able to look at us and see a work in progress, but a new creature nonetheless. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.